Well, if you recall last week, we looked at only one verse, and that's verse 19. And we approach that by, by really responding or answering three questions. A, a what question, a why question, and a how question. Those three questions were, what is the object of our love? Why do we love? And how do we increase our love? And as we answered these questions, what I wanted us to see is that John describes loving God as a normative pattern in Christian living. It's not for the elites, it's not for the spiritually mature, it's a reality that every Christian experiences. But he doesn't just state the case. He grounds this claim in the love of God. Christians love God because God has loved them. The fruit of love is rooted in the wellspring of God's own love for us. And I thought it was helpful to pause there instead of running through this entire unit that we read just now because it sort of serves as a preface for our study today. John has introduced this last short section by first reminding us about something which should be an obvious and incontrovertible point. That point, of course, is that if you have experienced God's love, that you ought to respond to love him. But having raised that point that Christians' love is built on a love for God, he moves on to summarize his teaching which we read from verse 7. What John is seeking to emphasize in these few verses is that there is a love that proves that you actually love God. In other words, love for God is proven by love for the brethren. And before we get into the main point or unfold that idea further, I just want to remind you of a sober thought that's latent in this passage. There's such a thing as superficial Christianity. The correspondence that this passage has to our local context shouldn't be difficult to see. At the time of John's writing, the identity of the church was being threatened. As I mentioned last week, there were a significant number of people who were departing from the apostolic teaching, departing from John's teaching, departing from an orthodox understanding of who Christ is, departing from an orthodox understanding of what they are supposed to believe in terms of God's commandments. There was a departing from that truth. And given that departing, it wasn't as though the people who left the church suddenly became Satanists and said, well, you know, we now believe in Satan and we have nothing to do with the church. It was that they departed from the ministry of, of John's teaching, but yet still wanted to fly under the banner of Christianity. So the book of John is somewhat polemic. It's answering the question or it's responding to this situation or this crisis within this local church or group of churches. And I mention that because that situation is similar to here. There are plenty of people in the land of Barbados who have been flying under the banner of Christianity or superficially would say they're Christians. But if you prod further, if you push the envelope, that is proven to be false. The people within our context, it was obvious that people knew their views about God. It says in verse 20 that John is saying, if anyone says, I love God. So it was the case that these people were actually maintaining that they love God, that they loved Yahweh, the true and living God. 
We have a very Christianized society. And because of its dominance, there is much incentive for superficial Christianity to be maintained and even embraced. Whether it's because you want to maintain family tradition, or because you see you want to be seen as a moral or religious person, whatever the case, cultural Christianity is a big norm here in Barbados. You only have to visit churches on All Year's Night to know the re this reality. Just to give you a sampling, an acquaintance of mine a few years ago told me that his plan was, this was before we took a break for All Year's Night, his plan was to go to church that night, that is All Year's Night, and then get so drunk later on that he couldn't remember what happened. Fortunately, the Lord had different plans for him because as we know, the country was locked down, so he had to stay home. But what I'm trying to get at is that there, it is within the realm of possibility, and I would say even more strongly, a lamentable reality in Barbados that people play lip service to God and have no actual relationship with God. There are many who say, I love God, but their words are proven to be a lie. And this is the sober reality that I want to point out. You can't really judge the presence or absence of Christianity by mere external displays. It's easy to say Christian lingo. It's easy to get caught up in worship music. Even for the most sober-minded, perhaps you've been moved by how easily you can be emotionally affected by something. The passage today reminds us that acts of love, words of affection, adoration towards God are in and of themselves an incomplete witness to the reality of your salvation. Let me repeat that again. The passage before us today reminds us that acts of love towards God, words of affection, adoration towards God are an incomplete witness to the reality of your salvation. What I'm saying is that if you want to know if someone's a Christian, or if even you are a Christian, you have to look beyond momentary displays such as these. I'm not saying that those aren't helpful. I encourage you to, as I mentioned last week, that sometimes we have a very cold disposition towards God and that we aren't found saying words like, I love you, Lord. But I am saying that that in and of itself, John says in this passage, is an incomplete attestation to your salvation. And that's the very import of this book. What we have in the book of 1 John are tests of spiritual vitality, or more simply, evidence of Christianity. The book of 1 John isn't a checklist about how you get to heaven. The Johannine books clearly present Jesus as the only way of salvation. John opens his epistle by declaring the word of life. He opens it by, by, in chapter 2 by speaking about Jesus who's atoned for our sins. So there's no confusion in the mind of John. It isn't that John is saying, like, you have to maintain this Christian character to be a Christian or to gain salvation. That isn't his thought at all. His thought is that, and the overall thrust of this book is that there are markers or there are marks that show whether you are within the contours of Christianity. And it's in within this overall paradigm that he writes. As you may know, we've been 
plodding along on this theme of love for quite some time. And I just wanted to highlight that in this section, John says in different words and summarizes his key point from verse 7. I'm sure all of us remember things that our parents have repeated over and over and over again that was almost ad nauseum. For me, one of those pieces of advice was to be economical with words, or to put it more bluntly, don't speak a lot, listen a lot. Uh, I'm not sure why my mother used to say that so often at the time, I wasn't sure. Uh, but as I grew older, I started to understand why it was so important. And just like a good parent, John is emphasizing over and over again to the Christian community, that love for the saints is a key Christian distinctive. So with that in mind, this sober reminder, Christianity can be superficial. There is such a thing as superficial Christianity. There are people who would tell you, I love the Lord, to the cows go home and maintain that, but yet not be true Christians. With that in mind, let's look at verse 20 and we'll see how John emphasizes this point. Verse 20 reads, if you don't love your brother, who you can see, you can't love God, who you cannot see. Based on the few commentaries that I read, there are two dominant ways of interpreting this passage. The first can be taken in an argument grounded in our constitution as human beings, our psychology. And the second can be taken as an argument from the greater to the lesser. With respect to the first view, stated post Positively, his proponents would say something like this. It is easier to love the things that you can see than the things that you cannot see. So if this is the case, those who love the unseen God should be able, because it's easier, to love the seen brethren. Because it's easier to love the brethren who you can see than it is to love things that you cannot see. In this view, the idea, or proponents of this view, hold the idea that John is grounding his argument by appealing to our constitution, our proclivity to love those we can physically see. But I don't think that John is hoping that this community recognizes that their constitution makes it easier for persons to love, or Christians to love those who are nearer to them physically in their proximity than those who are far. And here's why. While I think we can agree that out of sight, out of mind is a truism, I think we can all agree with that. If we adopt this as a biblical truth, you could literally never love God more than you love the brethren. That would be impossible. If it is that your constitution literally limits you from loving people who are unseen, it would mean that you could never love God as much as you love the brothers. But even more than that, Scripture expressly says that our love for God does not flow from sight. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, it, it literally says that we, though uh, you have not seen him, you love him. So our love does not flow from sight. So I don't think John is trying to convince us about uh, the fact that these believers ought to have loved the brethren if they say they love God, because it's easier to love people who you see. I don't think that's the case. The option we're left with is that John is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. In the art of rhetoric, this would be called an argument 
a fortiori, literally from the stronger. And it's the idea that if you make a strong claim about something, a lesser claim has to be necessarily included in it. So if I make the, the greater claim, this is as an example, if I make the greater claim that someone has excellent algebra skills, necessarily I have to include in that that the person can add because someone who can do algebra by necessity has to know how to add. So what's the correspondence for our text tonight? When looking at this passage, it's likely that John is highlighting the absurdity of the claim to do the greater work of loving the invisible God, but not doing the lesser work of loving your brothers and sisters who are made in his image. Just like someone who boasts of doing algebra ought to be embarrassed if he couldn't do basic arithmetic, John is exposing just how fake or ungenuine a professing brother's boast is if they are found seriously lacking in love for their brothers and sisters. And the reason for that is because men are a visible reflection of the invisible God. Listen to what he says. You can't claim to love God who you have not seen. And in the same breath, do not love your brother who you have seen. Men are in the image of God, and while we must maintain that Christians are indeed sinful and therefore do not represent their Creator perfectly, the truth of the matter is, among Christians, that is a life, that is the closest thing you will get to a life of fellowship with God on earth. So, though it is true that we are sinful, and as Calvin has said, we're often worthy of contempt. We have to maintain that we are visible representations of the invisible God. It's therefore irreconcilable in the mind of the inspired writer to have love for the invisible God. And yet, when the visible representation of God is set before you, you respond with indifference or contempt. It is a false boast. Indeed, it is feigned love. It isn't real love. If your life, your actions, your attitudes towards your fellow believers is one that's characterized more by neglect than love and commitment. You don't have to go far in human history to understand that where men have lost sight, that their fellow man is an image bearer, it has led to all sorts of atrocities. In the Nazi-run Germany, less than a hundred years ago, as part of the final solution for ridding Germany of the pestilence of Jews, they were shipped off to killing centers where they were culled like cattle. And the reason that the Germans invented gas chambers was because it was too expensive to execute Jews any other way. The reason a Jew went through the agony of that torture was simply because it's too expensive to do it. It's a problem for me to kill you any other way. And if you think that the wickedness or man's heart has changed because of modernity, you know, because we're in the age of love and tolerance, that's certainly not the case. Right now, soldiers are on trial for war crimes in Afghanistan because they were found taking pictures of an uh, Afghan's prosthetic leg 
that they were drinking beer out of who they had killed. So it's not that men have moved away from their savagery. It's not that men have moved away from that. The jury is still out as to whether that person will be tried and, and condemned, but they are on trial. But what I want you to see is, don't you see how incoherent it would be if you were a Nazi in Germany at that time and you met a Christian, a Jew, one who had converted from Judaism, and he came to you pleading, he came to you telling you about the love of Yahweh, about the Christ whom he had sent, who had loved him. And you looked at that person, you were Nazi, claiming to be a Christian, and you committed him to the gas chamber? Wouldn't you see that as utterly inconsistent with any claim to be a Christian? That's, that should be a fairly obvious point that we, that we see. John says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And he adds to this, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The idea here is that you are born both from the same, the same person, God, and so share the same Father. You are in the truest sense made family through the new birth. This little church here is the family of God. All those who are in Christ share one faith, one baptism, one Lord, as Paul memorably writes. But more to the point, we also have one Father. And the text today gives us a sense of just how unnatural it is for men to not love their brothers and sisters. And what this really highlights for us is the centrality of the love that we should be having among the saints in this local assembly. There's this old adage that the home drum beats first. Do you see this as the home drum that should beat first? Do you see this little assembly of 25 members as the home drum that should be beating first? When you think of your priorities, what do you think? The force of the teaching here is that the response of our heart should be a resounding yes. Listen to me, if you have prioritized your work colleagues, the boys on the block, Although most of us probably wouldn't even have those relationships. <laughs> your followers on the gram, you have neglected the people of God. You're merely paying lip service. When you say something like, I love God, that's John's point. The sincerity of your profession to love God, its passion and its frequency will only be shown to be completely hypocritical on the last day. The apostle is clarifying what it means for your heart to be far from God. It is having a heart far removed from God's people. That's what it means to have a heart far from God. The way that we prove our love for God, or the way that our love for God is tested, is by looking at the love we have for one another. What I'm saying is that if the church is not a concern for you, you are no different than my acquaintance who wanted to go to church and go and get drunk later that night. That's what it means. You simply play lip service to God if you have no concern for the people of God. There is certainly a command to love God above all. John has not forgotten this fact. We ought to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and with all our strength. But just as binding on the conscience of the Christian is the need to love your fellow saints. 
And this is completely disarming to our impulses to neglect one another. After your thoughts about considering the fact that your brother is an image bearer fails, after thoughts that you share the same father don't prompt you to love him, there's just the command to do it. That's what we see at the end of verse uh, 20, 21. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I know from being among many of you, even the aunties and uncles in this church, that the just do it card is the trump card for every parent or auntie. <laughs> after you finish appealing to reason, after you finish appealing to this thing or that thing, you just boldly say, do I tell you? And that's the approach that John takes. That's completely disarming. It's at, at the bottom of it, it's a command that God has given you. Just do what he says. The command to love God is as equal a command as the command to love God's people. We have spent some time at, and some, some time just looking at this sober reminder that's latent in the text and how John goes about exposing the folly of those claims by speaking about the commandment that we just spoke about just now, the fact that he argues from the stronger, stating that if you say that you love God and you don't love your brothers, that's a completely inconsistent way of reasoning. You can't love those who, you can't love the invisible God and not love your visible brother who's made in his image. We've looked at that for a little while. But what does this mean for the members at CRBC? I would say at this time, particularly during this season of COVID, this season of hurricanes, this season of all sorts of interruptions and changing life dynamics in the church, there are members who are struggling along. And if I can borrow Paul's analogy concerning the body, if one part of our body aches and pains, we don't go about our day as normal. We tend to actually somewhat treat the parts of our body that are in pain with a far greater degree of urgency than any other part. In fact, most of the time, if you had a toothache, you would direct a lot of attention to your toothache rather than some other minor inconvenience that's going on in your life. And what I'm saying is this, we ought to be mindful and eager to share with our friends, those who are called by Christ, his brothers, we ought to be eager to move towards them and share their burden, to move towards those brothers and sisters who are struggling, whether it's emotionally, whether it's physically, whether it's financially. Frankly, some people just want the comfort of company. Frankly, that's, that's literally all some people within the body just want, just company, somebody to reach out to them and know that that person has them in their mind. I think that we ought to be mindful of our responsibility and more, more strongly than that, the command of God to love the brothers. I think we ought to remember that it's utterly inconsistent with our profession to love God if we do not love the brothers. But I've been moved to near tears several times in prayer 
just thinking about the love that is shown among our little church. And like John, I'm not saying that these things that I'm saying right now because I don't think that we know the truth. But I know it's very possible for us to become weary in well-doing. To approach a task and see that it will have to be done another thousand times is daunting. But the way we are motivated to love one another isn't by our own efforts. As I mentioned last week, the mighty power of God is at work to will and to do what he pleases. As you press on to do this work and to indeed prove that you love God by the display of your love toward the brethren, I'd encourage you to hear the words of Jesus who gave himself for you as a suffering servant. He has condescended and washed the feet of the wicked and undeserving men. And more than that, he has died for them because he has loved them. Let us make it our aim to direct our focus and our eyes toward Christ who impressed on the disciples just before he died this command, the last command that he gave them, to love one another. This is part of our mandate as the church and one that I think is impressed on us by John over and over and over again. Literally from verse 7 up until chapter 5, verse 2 and several instances throughout the book. We read this, love one another.